Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode number 22. As usual, I'm super excited to bring you my latest interview, but first, we ramble. This week, I wanted to talk about accountability. I think the term accountability is probably thrown around a lot without anybody really thinking about it. You might hear people talking about their accountability group, or your boss might tell you that you'll be held accountable if you don't meet your numbers, etc., Let's start by defining this word. By the good old Oxford Dictionary definition, accountability is the quality or state of being accountable and obligation or willingness to accept responsibility for one's actions. Now, the first part of that is the technical but completely pointless use of the word to define the word. So let's forget about that. But the second part, that's where the gold is. A willingness to accept responsibility for one's actions. If you approach accountability the way I did several years ago, then you A, never looked up the definition, and B, thought it was something that somebody did to you. Your client holds you accountable for not making the deadline. Your bandmates hold you accountable for not calling the venue. The police officer holds you accountable for speeding. You get the point. So let's look back at that definition again. A willingness to accept responsibility for one's actions. Yeah. That's not really something that someone is doing to you. That's something that you do to yourself. There was something that I heard someone say, or I read, I believe it was from Darren Hardy, maybe, I'm not totally sure. But anyway, it was, life is your fault. Let that sink in for a minute. Everything that happens in your life is your fault. You did or didn't do something, which then resulted in a positive or a negative outcome. Instinctively, the phrase feels like it's focusing on the negative. And I believe that the context it was originally used in was definitely trying to bring to light that when something bad happens to you, it probably somehow connects back to your action or inaction in one way or another. So ultimately, you are the one that is responsible for everything you do or don't do. If you don't want to go to the gym, then you are responsible for being out of shape. It's not your band's fault because rehearsal the night before went later than normal. If you want to spend your evenings playing video games after work instead of finishing your record, you can't use having no time as the excuse that you haven't gotten your debut album released. At this point, you're probably starting to see where action ties into accountability. If you're taking the right actions to meet your goals, then one day you'll get to say in a positive way that it's your fault that you accomplished something. You did it. You took the actions and you met your goals. Now that we've sorted out what accountability really means, let's get into why most people don't have it. It's pretty straightforward, actually. 
Recognizing that your own action or inaction resulted in a negative outcome means that you'll have to accept failure. And people don't like to accept failure, yet alone be the one to tell themselves they failed. So in short, people don't want to hold themselves accountable because it's hard. You know what's easy is expecting someone else to do it for you. Hence, we reach this mindset of expecting someone else to hold you accountable, and now we're right back to where we started. So the first thing you have to do to work towards your goals is to get past all of that nonsense. You have to hold yourself accountable, but you don't have to do it alone. You just have to do it right. I think that no matter how old you are or what path you've taken in your life, you've probably come to notice that people are social creatures and that they're drawn to find teams and partners to work and to live with. So you take this social draw that we all have and you mix it with accountability and you get this productivity realm catchphrase of accountability group. Now, it's going to sound like I'm debunking the accountability group, but that is entirely not at all what I'm doing. What I want to do is call to your attention the fact that you've already been a part of and are probably still a part of some form of accountability group. And if you take that same approach to taking action that you've already taken without realizing it, and actively apply it to your goals, then you'll be set up for success. So what do I mean? The accountability group concept is not a new concept. In fact, it's an ancient concept. It exists all around you. Military units, sports teams, offices, study groups, bands. These are all essentially accountability groups. These are groups of people working towards a common goal. And despite how it seems, Nobody in these groups is holding you accountable for what you do or don't do. You are holding yourself accountable because you don't want to show up and have to tell your coworkers you didn't finish a task or your teammates that you were tired in the fourth quarter. You are, in fact, holding yourself accountable. You just don't realize it. So let's take that back to accountability groups. I believe that an accountability group or a partner or a coach are all valuable things as long as you never approach them expecting other people to hold you accountable. Only you can do that. So really, all these groups and partners are is teams working towards the common goal of getting better. You'll feel committed to your goals because you're reporting back to other people who are presumably just as committed as you are. You won't want to let the team down. So that's about all I've got. I know, it's not my smoothest ending. But the takeaway here is, whether you go at it alone, or you work with others, taking action is up to you. And you have to be accountable for what you do or do not do in your life. You can't expect others to do it for you. Today's guest is sound design wizard, entrepreneur, and tech enthusiast, Chris Gear. Chris is a co-founder of ADSR Sounds, as well as the owner of both OhmLab and SoundFreaks. He's known throughout the industry as a go-to designer and producer and has done projects with companies such as Native Instruments, Output, and Noise. Along with all that, he also does work for film and game audio and is always embracing the latest technology. So welcome to the show, Chris Gear. What's up, Chris? How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm, thanks for coming. Uh, coming from Portland, right? I am indeed, and it is uh, actually quite beautiful and sunny here today. Oh, nice. uh, smack dab in the middle of winter. Go figure. Right? Yeah, it was like 90 here in LA yesterday, and today, I don't Ooh. know what it is, but it's not 90 anymore. It's way colder than that. Uh, there was still ice on the ground here this morning, so <laughs> <laughs> not not quite in the same realm. <laughs> that's uh, that's awesome. So last time we hung out was on your Twitch stream like a month ago. What, oh, yeah. Uh, people should check it out. Mm -hmm. It's TV, right? Twitch.com TV. 
Uh, Twitch.tv slash OMLAB. O-H-M-L-A-B. Cool. I love what you're doing over there. It's um, it's cool. I, I love just the Twitch community in general. It's just really entertaining to me. Now that like musicians are all over. It's really it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a beacon of hope. <laughs> it is. It, yeah, it's um, it kind of came about at the right time. So hopefully, you know, people will be hanging out soon. But till then, we've got the internet. Yeah. We've got Zoom. We can see each other over Zoom. But uh, yeah. Right. So I was doing a bunch of research, and I have a lot of questions for you. Okay. But really, what I don't know is anything about like your very beginning. Uh-huh. Were you? Did you start playing keyboards in an early age, or were you always just like a sound guy? What was? How'd you get started? Yeah. So um, I was a bit of a a music nut as a kid. I glommed onto a bunch of different instruments very quickly. Refused all lessons, thinking that you know I could do this. I got this kind of attitude, which was stupid. And I, I enjoyed each of the instruments that I played, but only for a short while. Saxophone was one of my favorites. Um, I had a good run with it. There was a piano in the basement of our house, which nobody used. I would tinker on it uh, three, four times a week, probably, and just kind of pretend that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and one day, and I guess I should preface this by saying that one of my favorite places to hang out was the local music shop. It was called Portland Music. We had to drive to the next town over to get to it. And I would spend hours there. My father would go out grocery shopping or whatever. And I, I knew these guys. <laughs> like They let me take whatever instrument I wanted to into one of the practice rooms and just go for it. And I freaking loved them for it, right? That's awesome. Um, and I just spent countless, countless days there. And one day I walked in and someone had uh, set up one of the practice rooms, which were also lesson rooms with a brand new drum kit and the person for the lesson no-showed. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to play some some drums. I've never done this before. And I sat down and I started playing just a basic like four on the floor. And I was kind of shocked that this was happening. And I felt like, man, I've, I think I found my instrument. And I was a drum guy, like from that day on for years, uh, very much the drum kit was my main instrument. And then I started discovering hand drums and different percussion, uh, different battery instruments. And um, I was hooked. I I was like, this is just so primal. It just, it touches something way deep down in my core. So I was never the keyboard guy. (laughs) The ironic part of this, and I was very anti-digital, very anti-electronic. And mind you, I was born in the 70s, so I didn't grow up with the internet. That all happened later in adulthood. But I was very anti-digital anything, except for maybe some like guitar pedals that you'd plug in and get some cool stuff out of or whatever. So the big irony here is that I could actually make all of the keyboards and synths sound really good. And I had gotten a couple of keyboards and synths as gifts, like Christmas presents and whatnot growing up. And I always made great sounds with them. I never played them. I could never play them. And I didn't have much interest in theory at all. And then lo and behold, you know, years and years later, when everything goes digital and and soft synths are a thing, I had this knack. I could make them all sound warm and analog. And people were like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> And they started throwing money at me to make sounds for them. And I started doing this. And I was like, well, this is, uh, this is a side of the business that I never even entertained or like gave any kind of credit or validation to. And I had played in bands for years and years at this point. And, uh, 
I was ready to go down the rabbit hole, <laughs> so to speak. That's amazing. Were you in bands with keyboard players and like push them out of the way and you're like, hey, I got, let me get on there. I got to get this patch sorted out. <laughs> no, it was usually during breaks and stuff, right? We'd jam on something for a long time and then people would disappear and they'd go outside and smoke or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, well, they're gone. Maybe I'll just like, I was thinking that maybe this could have a little bit more grit and this could open up a little bit after it starts here. And I was really into the idea of change over time. And I, I couldn't for the life of me understand why someone would, would get a good sound and then just kind of stop there and then play the whole song with that sound the way that it was. And I wasn't even coming close to grasping the concept of less is more, which is like my, my famous tag nowadays um, for the past 12 years or so, less is more. And I truly do believe it now. But yeah, I just wanted to make stuff move and evolve and change. And I just wanted to see like how far you could push everything at all times. And um, and I was not that way with other instruments or anything. It was just the stuff that I couldn't play. <laughs> well, that, that's what I was going to ask you, actually, is it, do you think it's your your lack of uh, piano technical skills that made you really get interested in like developing the tone because you're probably playing basic parts, so therefore the interest had to come in the sound? Actually, it was more of a, um, it was more of a happenstance thing. Um, when I was young, I was... Uh, I guess about five and a half or so, something like that. And I was a complete jabberjaw, full entertainer, nonstop. I woke up and I couldn't talk anymore. I had lost the ability to speak. And I spent the next five to six years in speech therapy almost every single day. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was a brutal experience. But at the same time, not being able to communicate effectively and seeing how that changes it, like how other people perceive you and treat you and whatnot it leaves you a lot of time to sit and think and figure things out and whatnot and i became a tinkerer i started playing with tape and reel to reels eight tracks cart machines that type of stuff and really just started to tinker and the the instruments that i didn't have much interest in actually playing i wanted to create something with it wasn't music it was something else entirely. And I would sit there for probably an hour at a time with like even just a guitar and like sliding different things on them with different textures, trying to get different types of sounds out of them. And I would record these into, I had a couple different things. I had a, a, a Mickey Mouse uh, record player that you could actually kind of record to. It sounded awful. You could like record to this thing, which actually wasn't recording onto the disc at all. It was this internal memory thing. And then play it back. And there was this other um, like little reporter style tape box that I took around with me everywhere, like a little cassette recorder. And I would sample the heck out of things and then copy it all onto these tapes because I had this tape deck with two decks. And I would always, I just started cataloging this stuff at a really young age. And then, uh, and then I kind of forgot about a lot of that as I started getting into you know, garage bands playing rock and roll and, and then blues and funk and little jazz and just very much into the, the kind of jam and improv scene for many years, which introduced me to a ton of different styles of music just to play live with people like on the spot. And then long story short, I ended up working with Apple for many years and um, kind of headed up the the local training groups and workshops and user group communities here in the Portland area. Okay. And it really opened my eyes to where the tech was going and what it actually meant. And it kind of dawned on me one day that, man, we're all, we're all getting a recording studio. 
Like <laughs> all of us are going to have our own recording studio. This is awesome. We should do something with this new power. And then I went and I started OMLAB. But it was a long and winding road. It kind of went music, politics, music, hospitality, music, business, hospitality again for a quick minute, and then tech. I was in the Apple world for a while, and then I went back to music, and I just made a lot of connections. They threw a lot of toys at me, and I said, I'm going to take these connections and new toys, and I'm going to go start something, and I'm going to teach people in a totally new way. That's awesome. And, uh, and that's what I did, yeah. That's cool. Well, I wanted to go back to your found sound sampling back and forth between cassette recorders. Did you ever find oh, those yeah. tapes? Do they still exist? Oh, man. Uh, some of them do somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, some of them do not, absolutely do not. Like I record, I played them into oblivion. I tried to fix some of them with various forms of tape, right. uh, from scotch tape to <laughs> masking tape to everything. <laughs> um, some of them got eaten, which was a pretty common thing until I figured out how to actually take care of uh, tape players. Yeah. Um, and all of this led me down a, a much bigger technological rabbit hole of tearing things apart and then rebuilding them, not rebuilding them quite the same way and getting weird stuff out of them. And it, it ended up in a, in a weird way, introducing me to this guy that my new next door neighbors knew from their church. And this guy just happened to run the radio and TV program at the local high school about 15 minutes away that I would actually be going to in a few years. I was in junior high at the time and he said, hey, if you ever have any interest, and I said, do I have interest? Yeah. So I kind of buddied up with him and I started learning all of that stuff like officially, like for the reels, like all the cables and nice. all the all the ins and outs of all the gear in a radio and, and television station. And before I even got to high school. And then when I got into high school, I went through those classes, ended up building a radio station, built a closed circuit television station for the campus. And uh my final year at the school, I actually taught the first year of the class. And I was like, yeah, this is it. This is it. This is uh, this is my thing. My final year at yeah. school, I taught the first year of my class. I like that. Yeah, yeah. There were a bunch of my little sister's friends that actually took the first year of that class just thinking that it would be fun to have her, her big brother teach. <laughs> but you were twice as hard on, on them, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And and I mean, I knew everything that I was teaching them, but I didn't have any perspective on it. Like I didn't have any real world experience, you know? Yeah. But I had extra time. So I had a I had a couple different cable shows on public access. I made a I made a commercial for the, the Trailblazers, which is our local NBA team here. I just didn't know better. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be doing those things yet in life. So I just did them. You know what I mean? It was kind of like the stuff with sound. I just, I didn't know that they weren't supposed to work that way. I just made sounds that way. That was something I just talked about with another guest was when you're younger, like you have no preconceived notions of what you are supposed to do or what something is supposed to do. And so you just do whatever, you know? That is at the very root of the entire like ethos and systems that I've built over the years for for teaching this stuff and kind of helping to evolve all of this stuff. A lot of it comes from a lot of the deep reading of of like Buckminster Fuller and um, you know getting to talk with guys like Guy Kawasaki and Steve Wozniak and understanding the importance of community and like intention and integrity and and following some sort of a mission and actually seeing it through, you know, and it gives you an opportunity to gain greater 
perspective that you otherwise wouldn't have. And that gives you an opportunity to provide insight yeah. to other people. And when you do that, of course, you're learning and you start to extrapolate greater theories and laws from those that have come before you. And that's exactly, it's exactly what happened. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When were you at Apple? You said you, you knew Wozniak or you were talking, had access to chat with him? Yeah, well, I met him a couple times, and I met um, Guy Kawasaki a few times, and um, Jobs once. I was there, I was there c because I was in Portland. I never worked uh, for Apple down in Cupertino or anything, but I did go down there a few times on business trips. Um, I worked for a company called MacForce. I actually worked for a company called Media Systems Inc., and they owned MacForce, and they owned a creative design and um, advertising agency, really high-end boutique uh, called the Curiosity Group. Did a lot of stuff for big, big names, like right. Disney and Apple and whatever. And MacForce was kind of the, I don't know if you're into the Apple world, but there, there were two kind of meccas for the Apple cult. On the East Coast in New York, there was TechServe. And here on the West Coast uh, in Portland, there was MacForce. And they both had their little Mac museums and community events and like this crazy theme. And their brand went far beyond uh, like a normal like reseller shop or anything like that. So people would go there to learn and whatever. So, um, Got it. so yeah, I was there for several years. And um I just kind of grew in the company over time, and I became close with several people within Apple ranks, and I had some some rather cool opportunities extended to me too. So nice. it was uh, that was a big thing. Yeah, it was a big period. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. I mean, I think anybody, you know, that can find themselves in a place where you can, you know, uh, interact with some of these super heavy thinkers or these people that are, like, pushing boundaries, I think, has got to be super inspiring. Whether it was a yeah. five-minute conversation or or just a passing in the hallway or whatever. Yeah, these were um, uh, a couple were fleeting. The, the the conversation with Steve Wozniak was very fast and fleeting. Steve Jobs was inspiring. Guy Kawasaki, though, he he's the one that made me really kind of synthesize the importance of community followed by organic evangelical energy, right? Like you introduce something to people in a way that you never actually tell them how to use it or how they should use it. You give it to them as a tool and a source of inspiration. And then as they unlock things, they have ownership of that. And they are then sharing it with the greater community, including the developers themselves of these goods. And it's a very reciprocal symbiotic relationship when you stop and you think about a brand like this, right? This was, I mean, sure, they had tools that were game changers, but there were other companies out there, right? Right. What they were trying to do was embrace the user base rather than grow the user base through sales, 
right? They really wanted there to be some kind of an experience and some kind of a culture in this because they understood that they couldn't compete with the bigger guys on the block when it came to advertising dollars and long run campaigns. If they really went to war against these guys, uh, they would have lost at that point. And so they kind of turned to their community in a rather unique way. And I've always seen that as the, I don't know, the, I guess the superior, but also just natural and honest way to do business, right? Yeah. If I don't ever try to sell you something and you like what I do, then we have a relationship that's actually founded in something other than just a transaction. True. And it leaves doors open for other things like vulnerability or experimentation or, you know, hype that's not actually come across as, that doesn't come across as, you know, marketing hype. It's more of a, of an experience, a, a shared experience at, that we're all excited about kind of a thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you see those same exact things being talked about by guys like Bucky Fuller and the way that you have what you need around you if you simply tune in to the truths that you know instead of constantly trying to sell each other on something, trying to perpetuate your own thing. And I just kind of, I, I just kind of combined those, those concepts and said, okay, you know what? I think that it's great for us to have the technological ability to... Um, what did he always say, to protect and nurture and support. But what I really wanted was for there to be a way to create like sustainability and access more than anything else, right? Yeah. The permaculture movement was starting. The hack culture was really coming up as something positive, no longer negative. And these things were emerging on a new level. And what I was seeking was some kind of a crossroads where I could kind of see these things meet, right? And... um you know, instead of trying to reorganize the environments of man, quote unquote, you know, in, instead, I think that we should reorganize our minds in how we engage with our environments and our pursuit-based challenges, right? If we're going to go down the road of something and chase it to the end, then I feel we need to change our mindset at the very outset of this endeavor and allow other people in. Yeah. And go on that journey with us and to not lock away the things that have allowed us to find success. Even if it's just, how is that one sound made? Right. Or how do I get my kick to get through in this mix? Right. I was just so sick and tired <laughs> of people asking an honest question in an online forum and watching them get eaten alive <laughs> by these people that are like, that's an outrageously stupid question. You should not be here. <laughs> it's like, come on, man. Come on. Seriously. Everybody's trying to learn something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've all got to start somewhere. And yeah. yeah, I think that these doors open through community. And um, I mean, like you were saying, Twitch, right? Right time, right place. Yeah. There's two things I wanted to bounce back to that I jotted <laughs> down there. Uh, one, I just kind of wanted to build a parallel between kind of like building a music career and looking for fans now versus mm. what you were talking about where you're building community, you're not going up against the big dogs with your advertising dollars, focusing on what fits into your core system and how you can succeed. And I think that mm -hmm. that is like the best way for 
like a fledgling artist to really get some traction in today's world. You have to really focus on those people that really want to be involved with your project and give them access to, you know, an all-around experience and then let it grow from there as opposed to paying for playlisting and crossing your fingers and hoping for an explosion. You know, when I was growing up, my dad was in sales and he used to tell me that um, relationships are everything. And I used to hear that and, of course, you know, quickly dismiss it because it was my dad and not like my friend or something, right? Right. Of course, he was talking about the sales of RV parts and accessories, and I was talking about music and like changing the world and stuff. And and I thought that we were just on two very different planes. Um, And then one day it just kind of dawned on me as I was kind of trying to make my way through, you know, adulting and and businessing and stuff as as a grown-up quote unquote and uh you know it kind of dawned on me for real one day that i make a widget you make a widget joe walks through the door he could buy from either of us who's he gonna buy from right is he gonna buy from the guy that sells it for three pennies less with a quicker checkout or whatever some kind of bell and whistle that makes him superior or is he going to buy from the guy that knows his kid's birthday and knows the name of his hometown. And I just kind of really fully grokked what relationship and business actually meant, you know? And then I was able to kind of stitch together these things that I had learned from all these high-level thinkers and all these books and talks and stuff about these things that seem so elementary when they're speaking them. But when you actually start to apply them, I had this concept of if you could speak outrageously and think fluidly, you could forever find discovery through intention. And it's this complex thought that that took years to kind of put into a very short number of words. But it, to me, it encapsulates everything that you need to chase something down in our new digital age. You can learn any kind of discipline. Mm-hmm. We all use the same exact medium. We have a mouse, a keyboard, and a screen. Yep. There are no different skills involved with those three tools there, the tools specifically, between Photoshop or Logic or Pro Tools or whatever, right? Yep. High-end 3D modeling stuff. It's all point and click and drag, and it really just comes down to the fact that we can all do this. We just need a mentor. Yeah. We just need to know where to click and what to click and then why. And then eventually the decision-making needs to be disclosed to us at some point in time, right? Right. So we can understand like the logic behind the different steps involved. And once we know that, we can start using these tools just like we can, you know, musical instruments in in fantastical ways, you know, because we understand the basics of the tool and, um, because we're all individuals, if we if we can just kind of speak outrageously and think fluidly, put stuff into words, regardless of how wild those ideas might be, and do it in a way that's coherent and fluid enough for someone else to track it. In other words, not getting overly complex with tech jargon right. or whatever, right? Just losing people along the way. You quickly find that yeah, most people are along for the ride. Like most people can follow these conversations and most people can get behind the idea of like, oh, I could learn to code or I could learn to edit audio or photos or 
whatever. Like I could chase down one of these hobbies and make it a dream come true. Like yeah. this is actually much less daunting than everybody makes it out to be. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back for one more second and then, and then we'll go forward yeah. from there. Um, sure. I could see your going back to guy Kawasaki. You mentioned that he was a big proponent of giving the people the tools and the ideas, mm -hmm. like you were just saying, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then letting them do their own thing. I 100% yeah. see how that leads you into this like sound design mentorship and education path that you've like shaped yeah. for yourself because that's yeah. what you're doing, whether it be a sample pack or whether it be a tutorial or whatnot. Right. I'm, like I can s imagine the answers to all the questions I have over here. I'm gonna have to delete some of them. <laughs> <laughs> or just call up Guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> guy, I've got one of your minions over here. <laughs> uh, but so when did you start to get into helping people develop these tools? When did you start deciding to yeah, mentor people yeah. and, and teach people some of what you've encountered? So uh, the, the bubble was popping. We were seeing all of the early signs of a depression or a great recession or something looming. And it all happened very, very quickly. We had, I feel like, uh, kind of a, a canary in the coal mine couple of moments where our really big clients like DreamWorks and, you know, Nike and these guys were like, actually, we're going to pull back on this campaign. And we're like, what? That means we're going to have to get rid of like 30 people upstairs. And we're probably going to have to get rid of like four or five people down here. What, what's going on here? And then, you know, you start hearing people talking about real estate going downhill and stuff. And uh, it dawned on me one day, like I could watch more people uh, get canned and laid off here, or I could bail and a few people could keep their jobs. I could go make music again. Like I wouldn't mind doing that full time again. And so I started thinking about it and I actually bailed. I, I went to Hawaii for a week or two just to think. I sent an email to my boss. I was like, I need a break. <laughs> I'll be back. Uh, no worries. I will be back. And I came back after thinking about it for a while. And I decided, you know, this is a good time for me to go. What I really want is an opportunity to create again, because I really miss creating just freely. I'd love to build a brand new portfolio and start putting stuff into to film and game and stuff. But along the way, I would like to use some of these community building skills and these workshop building skills and stuff. Like I had built real curriculum for a fantastic company at a really high level and people grew through that. And I felt like I had learned enough and I had received enough, um, you know, insight and, and guidance and access along the way that I could kind of find my way with the things that I wasn't fully confident in yet. So I did. I took the leap of faith. I went and I used my employee discounts to get a really nice machine and <laughs> you know, some future hard drives and uh, stuff like that. Um, I, I had all the gear I needed and and I I said adios and and I woke up the next day and started making music and I was outputting couple few songs a day for a little while, wow. just like it was just pouring out of me and it was insane. And I was trying to figure out where should I go with this? And I'm looking at a couple of different boutique agencies in town. And then it dawned on me that if I was going to do this, I should really walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And so I started looking at all the royalty-free marketplaces that were just coming online. And I had worked with Envato before uh, because they were in the Mac world prior to all the creative marketplaces. And they were just about to launch a new website called Audio Jungle, which now is like one of the biggest marketplaces for royalty-free stuff in our world. 
And I decided to jump in with them. And it was great. Again, really big focus on community. They're out of Australia. So they didn't have the the United States Old Boys Club looming over them in the music industry. You know, they had a totally different thing going. And the majority of their creators were not in Australia. I mean, there were people from from Russia and Japan and Chile and like all these different places. And I'm like, this is this is like this is where it starts. Yeah. People aren't gonna be putting Hans Zimmer into their movies soon because they're not going to be willing to pay 60 grand or whatever it is to get him right They're They're going to go for, for $300 or 40 bucks or whatever it yeah. is. Right? Like eventually this is where it is because people are going to want an opportunity and Hans Zimmer is going to live a long time. So there's a lot of people in a lot of different countries that are going to want an opportunity before he goes <laughs> and it's all, it's all going to shake out this way. And so I thought I, I saw it very close. I, I, I thought I saw it very clearly. And so I kind of wrote up, a mission statement for myself. Like, okay, if I'm going to make a run at this stuff and I also want to teach people how to do this, uh, then what, what are my parameters here? Like I decided that there should be some level of transparency and vulnerability and kindness because I was sick and tired of all the jerks. <laughs> um, and, you know, just embracing emerging tech at, at every turn. And, um, and I got up on the soapbox one day about there's no such thing as competition and there's no such thing as a bad sound. Like, welcome to the year 2010 or whatever it was, right? And people were like, eh. And I just kept pushing. I kept making these little tutorials of like, hey, this is what a DSer does or this is what a noise gate is or whatever. Just starting with the very, very basics. Yeah. And I get a call. I get a call or, uh, or an email uh, from this guy, Steve, one day saying, hey, would you be interested in making a series of 10 tutorials? It's for Massive. And I've been working with Native Instruments at this point. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. And he was like, cool, because I think it would be awesome to help people learn about Massive because, you know, Native Instruments, like, gave us this thing from the future and nobody knows how to use it. There's two videos on YouTube and I think we can do better. And I said, okay. And he said, I just got a WordPress site set up. It's massivesynth.wordpress. And I was like, okay, cool. And so I put together 10 tutorials that week and I decided like, how do you introduce the world to a wavetable synth that's part of this massive collection of stuff? Like you had to buy complete to get it, right? right. And, and it was this huge thing. Little did I know Torrentine was going to touch software. Like I was very much in the mind that like, oh, people are downloading MP3s, of course they are. I didn't realize that there were millions of people downloading this thing right. and uh, not knowing what it was or whatever. So I made this series of 10 tutorials. I was like, all right, we'll make a song with this thing in Logic. We'll hold down one key and it'll play 10 different tracks at once. It'll play through a song. We'll make drums, we'll make a synth, a bass, a pad, whatever. And we'll just do it all in Massive. So we issue the first tutorial and there were a lot of people like a lot of people, like in the first day, it was like 7,000 people or something like that, that read this thing. It was a written tutorial. And then we oh, put wow. out the second and it was like, there was like 10,000 people. And we're like, what? No, this is stupid. This is not real. Right. Uh, and we put out the whole series of 10. He was like, I want you to make more. And I was like, all right, dude, I'll do like another 10. He was like, let's just, let's just keep this going. I'm like, all right, cool. And this guy, he's from Scotland. He's living in Hong Kong with his, his girlfriend at the time. They're working at this marketing agency, like high-level stuff. I, I don't know him. He doesn't know me. 
I make more tutorials. And he was like, hey, cool. Do you think you'd have some time to like get in the back end of the website and actually start posting this stuff up for me? And I was like, yeah, sure. I can take care of that. And then it just started to take off in this really crazy and unexpected way. And then, so we moved away from MassiveSynth.wordpress and got MassiveSynth.com, get a note from one of the guys that I know at Native Instruments saying, what the hell are you doing? I just searched Massive and we're on like page eight. Native in Instruments is on page eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, dude, I don't know. I don't know. And so Steve is like, hey, let's chase this and see where it goes. Let's let's keep doing this. And I'm like, well, um, I've had a bit of a change of heart. I'm feeling a little stir crazy. And this great recession thing is kind of bumming us out here. I might go to Thailand. And he said, That's great. I'm in Hong Kong. Maybe we'll meet up sometime. And I'm like, okay, so you're cool with me doing all this remote? He's like, yeah, sure, I don't care. I was like, all right, cool. So I'm mostly just still focused on my own thing, and I'm making these tutorials, and it's like one a day kind of thing, so it's not a big burden or anything. Get to Thailand, had a had a brand new laptop, um, pair of headphones, a couple portable speakers, uh, an H4N Zoom recorder, yeah. and a couple of other things, a, a backpack. And after a couple of weeks there, it was all of a sudden a couple tutorials a day, and then it was a few tutorials a day that were actually being published that same day, and people were gobbling them up. And then all of a sudden it was like MassiveSynth.com and now introducing FM8Tutorials.com. And then <laughs> a couple weeks later, it was AbsintheTutorials.com and then ContactTutorials.com. And after a couple years of that, I went back to the States, and Steve was like, we should make a real run at this. And I was like, all right, I will assemble a team. And so I started this recruitment campaign to recruit sound designers and producers from all over the world. But our thing, our hook, was that we wanted this to be something for the independents, not people that were already selling on Loopmasters, not people that were already making tutorials for MacProVideo.com or any of the other emerging guys. I wanted, like real, legit, these are the guys actually producing the music that you're hearing in the clubs and the festivals, right? Right. And so that's what we did. And I mean, I was reaching out to people in freaking Uruguay and Bosnia and like all these crazy places. I would hear something. I was like, wow, that's fantastic. And I would call them or email them or whatever I could. Uh, and then a few months later, we've got all these people and we started off with like five or six, one for each one of the different websites. So we had a contact guy and a reactor guy. It turns out that the reactor guy was actually this guy, Donnie, who lived just a few doors down from me in Portland. <laughs> and I'm like, this is crazy. So we built this tiny little team. And then from there, we started recruiting actual sound designers because we didn't want to do just tutorials. We wanted to do sound packs too and, and introduce the first like truly independent marketplace for all this stuff. And when I thought that I had made some some friends who wanted to be enemies when I was doing the royalty-free stuff with Envato, I was blown away when we started working on this marketplace and people were like, you are taking away my livelihood. And I'm like, no, no, we're not. <laughs> we're just getting started. <laughs> and then like the very first sound pack that was up there, man, this kid, he's from the UK. He was putting himself through medical school. Music was a hobby. Dubstep was emerging. This dude was making thousands of sales on this one pack every month. And we're like, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. That's crazy. Native Instruments asked me to make something official for them. I did that. And then next thing you know, we're like running these contests, giving away copies of Complete, putting up new sounds in the store every week. It was all put into one website instead of a whole bunch of different scattered websites. 
and Steve called it ADSRsounds.com. And I was like, that, yeah, ADSR, that's... That's amazing. So it started yeah. as written tutorials for Massive. Yeah, which dominated SEO because I knew a fair bit about SEO and marketing and stuff from all my marketing years with Apple and, and, and at a pretty high level. And I taught these workshops and I knew I knew how to do it. I knew all about the keyword density and all of the all the little things that were triggers for Google and their algorithms. And it's become much more complex now. It's much harder to do all of that now. But yeah, it was uh, it was very much uh, an unintentional thing. That's amazing. Now, you said Steve was in Hong Kong. He was like a marketing, deep in the marketing world. Did he have a, a further down the line vision? Or you guys were both just like going with yeah. it? Yeah. Well, we were going with it. And he also had a further down the line vision. I really wanted to get an independent marketplace set up. And, and at this point, you know, it, it should be clear, we weren't like partners at this point. I was absolutely being paid by him to, to do, do these, these things, yeah. right? Right, because he had built this little bedroom blog and all of a sudden he was like, wait, dude, this could really be something. I was like, yeah, it really could be. And I'm like, I'm along for the ride. Like, let's do this. Let's make this into something. Was he a music and, fan? Um, yeah, and, and, and okay. a producer. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. All right, now that explains yeah. why he wanted yeah. to do a massive thing. I was like, what? Yeah, but you got to go back in time to, you know, 2010 when this stuff started and the fact that no music was being sold. Right. Like very few copies of anything was being sold and there were millions of files being downloaded every single day illegally. Yeah. And music just kind of came to this grinding halt and no one really knew what to do with it yet. There wasn't a streaming service yet for people, yeah. right? Or a subscription service. And so everyone that was making music had a job. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, outside of the upper echelon, right? right. And it was a grind. He, he really wanted to open up a brick and mortar, a school. And I was like, oh, dude, I see all this stuff staying online. I don't know. That was the very first time we had ever like had a difference of opinions in in like the early creation of all of this. I was still in Thailand. He was visiting Thailand for the week so we could do some plotting and planning. When I moved back to the States, uh, he actually moved to Thailand, ironically. <laughs> uh, he and his wife are still there. They've got a couple of kids, a few kids now and ADSR is what it is. I mean, it's it's like one of the most popular daily destinations online for people. You were saying earlier mm -hmm. that uh, in the back of your mind, you had an idea for a marketplace while you guys were doing this blog. So how did um, how did all of your ideas combine his and yours? Well, the interesting part is that the the first sound pack that was put up. Um, I really don't like dropping names or anything, so I'm not going to. But the first sound pack that was put up that was selling like crazy that I was talking about, Steve put that up. And this was one of the longtime readers of the blog. And he was like, man, I've been following these. I've I've got a really cool thing. And he was producing, too. He was producing some dubstep stuff, this, this guy. And he was like, I just really want to see if some people are interested in these sounds. And Steve was like, yeah, dude, we'll, we'll toss it up. We'll sell it for like 10 bucks, no problem. You know, and we'll... You know, you can keep the, the the lion's share. And he was like, okay, cool. We didn't have a marketplace. We just, we honestly did not have a marketplace. And I was attaching to every single tutorial a preset, at least one. Like whatever was made in that tutorial, I would post and then people would download that. So it was uh, this huge traffic driver. Right. Because where else are you going to go for presets and whatnot, except for these bigger marketplaces like Loopmasters? And there were not other options. There was only a couple because the other marketplaces didn't exist yet. Right. There was Big Fish, and there was Loopmasters. Sample Phonics was emerging. There were obviously no subscription plans or anything like that. But this first sound pack, Steve just tossed up. And, and after 
a week, he was like, dude, uh, this guy's making some sales. And I was like, well, maybe we should think about doing this. And he was like, all right, why don't you spin out um, a couple packs? And I was like, yeah, sure. But if we're going to do this, like we should really have a bunch of different people because I'm not the guy to make all the emerging stuff. I think that this should be as true and genuine as possible if we're going to do it. He was like, oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There should be no fake in this. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And he was like, would you be up to recruiting? And I said, yeah, I had my own recruiting company. I know how to do this. Before I went back into, be, between hospitality and the tech world, I started my own recruiting business. It was very lucrative and it was very eye-opening and it was... um like really not a passion. I enjoyed helping people find work in the industry or whatever, but that was it. Um, and I was like, okay, so I could put those tools to use, th those experiences to use. So I'll, I'll do this. And so I recruited a whole bunch of people and and then we had to train those people. Like here's here's what a standardized sound pack would look like. And this is how you would upload it. These are the things that we would expect. And And some of those people started writing little guest posts and stuff. And it started to become like a thing. Like these people started to be recognized um, when they were uploading things. And now, all of a sudden, you've got other people wanting to do it. Yeah. Splice showed up one day, right? And like there, there were these different marketplaces that were like, we're going to do this. Yeah. And and then we were like, yeah, we're, we're definitely onto something. And it was about that point, Steve was like, I can't pay you. I can't do this anymore. I got to pour all this money into advertising, I think. And I'm like, yeah, you, yeah, do that. And so I went and uh, started up Sound Freaks. And Sound Freaks was a thing that I built out of, um, I had been given lessons to this guy, Avery Berman, shout out to Avery, who's this genius producer. From day one, I felt this. And he had contacted me asking me like, hey, how do I make this, uh, the Cohen sound, sound that I'm hearing in this track? And like we had sessions every week for a few years after that. And then at a point I was like, dude, we should I stop paying me. We should make some stuff together. And your Vanderpool, he was another guy that we brought into the fold for ADSR. Um, I'm like, you're a brilliant and genius Dutch sound designer. Let's do this. You and me and Avery. Avery doesn't know sound design. He knows production. He'll do the demos. And you and I will make twisted sounds that people don't expect. And he was like, all right, great. And I said, but there's got to be a, a level of education in there too. They're super into it. And so we built um, Sound Freaks and it was insane. Like the reaction that we got, it was insane. Loopmasters wanted an exclusive relationship and I had just left ADSR and I'm like sitting here at a crossroads like, oh, but I want to sell through ADSR and take advantage of this huge freaking community that yeah. I've just built. But then again, Loopmasters is offering to do this, and I already have Ohm Lab over there with ADSR, so maybe I maybe I should just kind of test the waters or whatever. And and so we did, and we packaged up like the first I forget I think it was like six titles or something like that, and released them all at once through Loopmasters, like this big blitz campaign, and they hadn't done that before, so we got all this attention very quickly. We put out a, a follow up like a like a three pack series for FM8 of all things, started getting calls from all over the place. Apple actually called a couple of times. Jeff Cross, who heads up the, the Logic team, like literally calls my cell phone a couple of times. And we're talking with these, with these companies, like these massive partnerships looming. And we're like, what is going on here? This can't happen twice, right? Like ADSR was a fluke and Sound Freaks can't be as big as ADSR. And then a couple of days later, our lives, uh, 
drastically and suddenly changed. My my wife had a um, a massive uh, health diagnosis, and um, she wasn't able to work. And quite literally, just over one night, everything changed. Had to reimagine everything. Wow, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, and it led to me. Um, um, having this conversation with pure mind of all folks, it was all very strange the way that the timing happened, but I had to tell Avery and Yor that we had to put sound freaks on pause and apologize to all these folks that were wanting to partner up and stuff. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, God, this might be the biggest mistake ever at this point but went down to the Bay Area. Pure Mind really wanted me to come down, revamp the curriculum for their sound design programs, and then build a global mentorship network. I had already built a few networks. There, there were some things after ADSR that I built as well, network-wise. And they wanted me to kind of recreate that same thing and build a mentorship network. They knew that I was Mr. Mentor online and that I was all about building these really tight-knit communities that were fully evangelized and, and highly mobile and engaged. And so that's what I did. I went down and I taught in the classroom for a couple of years at PureMind while I built the mentorship network. We had our son while we were down there. Um, my wife's health continued to be rotten and um, forced us back up here to Oregon. And when I came back up, I decided, all right, I'm going to relaunch OMLAB first, and then we'll reboot Sound Freaks, and we will hit the ground running exactly where we left off. I got OMLAB relaunched, and I was kind of going back and forth between whether I was going to just go right back into YouTube with tutorials or whatever, or if I was going to go full on into Patreon or, or what. But I wanted to get something in there with some kind of like residual subscription kind of income right yeah. before relaunching Sound Freaks. Um, so I got OMLAB all relaunched and about to hit the go button on Sound Freaks, and COVID happened. <laughs> so Sound Freaks is still currently paused. But OMLAB, I decided to go through um, Twitch at that point. Like once the pandemic started, I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to touch social media. Like I haven't posted <laughs> anything meaningful to Facebook or Twitter or anything like that in eons. I go on there and I post, I'm going live on Twitch and that's it. And that's all. <laughs> and I feel a little bit bad about that. But the rest of me is just like, man, Twitch is great. It's all positive. It is. I agree with that. And the other platforms are a bit soul-sucking if you're a creative trying to stay in the zone. And there's a lot of pay-to-play now, too. You know, it's like you don't really get fair engagement, which is... It's hard. Yeah. It's hard in social media land. It is It is just straight-up difficult. But Twitch, on the other hand, is flipping fantastic. Yeah. It's just a bunch of people just looking to be entertained, looking to be engaged. Yeah, it's real community. Yeah. Real Amazing. people, yeah. Chris, you're uh, you're smart as hell, dude. <laughs> like the, all of the things that like we've passed through while you're just telling your story are like blowing my mind. I'm like, I do have a couple questions that I think yeah, made the yeah. cut after um, hmm. really getting through the whole story. Do you have any any advice? And a lot of this has been trickled out throughout the interview. Do you have any advice mm -hmm. that you would give to kids, uh, like the kind of stuff that you were? doing with some of your mentorships is, are there any things that it's the best way to say this are there any issues or struggles that you feel like you helped a lot of people get through the same issue yes would you be willing to share any of those no <laughs> yes of course i would <laughs> <laughs> 
Next question. Um, so my tagline for Ohm Lab for uh, since the very beginning has been less is more. And it's true. The more things you throw at anything, the more difficult it is for other people to digest it, for you to find great meaning in it, for you to carry on intention through to the end of it. Less is more. Complexity is not always better. I love complexity and I will crank out a track in a couple of days that'll have, you know, 85 tracks in it or something like that. But there's room for everything. Yeah. And a lot of those things are fleeting. Less is more. And it's not just like layering sound or, you know, making over the top bass music or whatever. It's it's about, you know, when you start playing music with other people and you sit down in a, a basement or a garage or whatever and you start playing if everyone tries to show everything that they can do at the same time, it just sounds like a hot mess. True. Right? True. You, you can't have four people soloing at once. It just doesn't work. And you got to get out of each other's way. And the same exact thing is true in every single aspect of this business. Yeah. But besides less is more, I would say um, learn to listen and then listen better. I think that it's the most important communication skill. And then after that, learn how to put words to things. And you need your own language because you're going to talk to yourself in this business. Moving forward, we're all isolated in a completely different way. But you're going to talk with yourself more than anyone else. And you need to have coherent and honest conversations with yourself that actually lead somewhere. And if you're capable of doing that, then you can speak with other people about these things too. And you need to associate sounds and ideas to words that are commonplace for you in the everyday. Colors textures, flavors, emotions, start referring to a pluck as metallic or sharp or cold, or a pad as warm or opulent or whatever, right? Yeah. Gritty or sandy atmospheres or putting words to things matters more than you could ever imagine because words are power. There's this concept that drives everyone nuts when I first introduce it to them. And then it changes their lives. And then they preach it from the mountaintops. And that is fractals and the Fourier theory reign supreme. You can make any sound out of any other sound. And you can make any sound. If you don't have a name for it, it probably just hasn't been made yet. Right, you yeah. can you can reduce any sound into a sine wave, and you can turn a sine wave into any sound. And once you start to to actually buy into that concept, yeah, and you're just using simple words like sweet, rough, sandy, hot, warm, round, whatever, it all becomes much more simple, and you can follow things one step at a time. Be vulnerable. If you can't be vulnerable, then people aren't going to like you. <laughs> in all of this. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You won't be able to relate to people and they won't be able to relate to you on a very genuine level. And I think that in the future, if you're going to connect with people, you have to be genuine. I think that people have had enough oh, yeah. of the manufactured and the curated experience and show up. Yeah. Genuine authenticity is uh, definitely, I think, soon to be the only thing that matters for any form of art. You know? Word. Yeah. We and show up. Like 90% of the people just don't even show up. That's true. That's true. And I think showing up is 
I think people, a lot of people hit a point in their career where showing up becomes difficult because you're burnt or you're viewing things the wrong way. It's like if you have the wrong mindset for why you're going to a session or why you're sitting down to make a sound, you're not going to show up because you're yeah. you're cooked in one way or another. So, Or you think you've been doing it long enough that you'll just get future success. That's right. It's just going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it just happens, right? Like I made that one sound that one time. Now people, yeah, people like me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of sounds. Yeah. In your opinion. Mm-hmm. Do you make a preset, this is my curiosity really, mm-hmm. more for usability in context of a piece of music or more to grab the listener's attention while they're surfing? Depends on what it is. Yeah. Depends on what it is. So I, I tend to um, follow intention and then explore. So I think that you find and you you discover through intention if you do this the like the quote unquote right way, like if you follow my thinking, uh, then you have an idea and you have a basic understanding of what you want to do to get that idea started, and then you let go. You've got to allow some time and some space for things to just kind of happen as well, which is what macros are for, right? So I'll make something, like you're saying, like, hey, are you trying to make this more as a utility, right. something that's more functional and accessible to the average user, or are you wanting ear candy? And I say both. Because that's what macros for, like, that's how you mutate a sound, right? And why only put, it goes back to those very early feelings that I was talking about at the very beginning about, like, the the keyboardist going and taking a break and me walking over there and being like, oh, let me just add a little, little love to this sound, because yeah. I don't know why you want this to be so static. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll make something that's highly utilitary in form, yeah. right, or function, and then in the macros, uh, just allow them to be twisted in a multitude of ways, and then to design the whole thing, I try for the large majority of my patches in any synth, if you were to go and swap out the oscillator or the wavetable or the noise profile or whatever that's loaded in, in any one of these slots, um, you're going to get a fantastic sound still. Okay, right. And it really comes down to the way that you're doing all of your programming. But yeah, I want these things to be really flexible. Yeah. So that's what they end up being. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. Do you think you've made a lot of sample packs, you've made a lot of presets... There's a lot of companies mm-hmm. making sample packs and presets. Are we reaching a point of oversaturation? Yeah, yeah. I think that we reached oversaturation in uh, different marketplaces a long time ago. But not everyone is in those marketplaces. Mm-hmm. And I think that we tend to look through things or look at things through lenses like these these kind of myopic lenses, unfortunately. We run in the same circles. We talk to the same people. We're checking the same updates or RSS feeds or marketplaces on the regular. We've got, you know, one main news aggregate that we keep track of all of our industry news through. And it seems as though everything is repetitious and not evolving at a in a way that we would have hoped or whatever. And it's not true. There's a lot of stuff going undiscovered. A lot of people have no way to get themselves out there or don't understand how to get themselves out there. There's a ton of really awesome ideas. Individual sounds and the number of sounds that people have access to is ridiculous it's, it's in the subscription model. Infinite. It really is. It is. And I've stopped, for the most part, I've stopped producing products for the companies that have the subscription services that are simply samples. I've been working closely with Output uh, for 
since Arcade came online, mm. basically. And there, I see this very differently. These are real people playing real world instruments and doing some really crazy things, you know, old analog gear. And like, they, they're they're pouring themselves into these things. And then you can make these things twist and turn in in crazy ways yeah. um, with their, with their I, I don't want to call it a rompler, but their, their, their loop sampler or, or synthesizer, right? Right. Um, and there's always new stuff, right? We just wrapped a new product line that'll drop in a short while. And there's more changes coming to the entire platform that people aren't expecting. And I think that these things make everything relevant again. Every once in a while, you just have to wait for the cycle to happen. Yeah. There will always be someone that comes along and says this, this is how you can use all of those sounds differently. I feel like that's half of what I do, like in the live streams and stuff. It's just like, all right, you guys send me something. Like we'll we'll figure out what we're making along the way. You send me something and we'll show how we can use it in a few different ways. Um, and it's inspiration, you know, and I think that when you look at it through that lens, there aren't too many sounds and there aren't bad sounds. It's just a matter of how are you going to use these sounds? And people that object to that kind of thinking, I challenge them with the idea of something simple like painting. You want to paint a picture. If you paint a really nice picture, you can become famous, maybe even rich. You don't even have to die first to do that as a painter, from what I understand. But you're probably not making your own canvas. You're not making your own brushes. You're not making your own dyes and paints. You're not you're probably purchasing those things in a store yeah. and then you're creating with them. And I think that people lose sight very quickly of, of what creation actually is and that it, it can be different for each person and that we should be allowed to enjoy something simply because we enjoy it. We shouldn't have to assess or judge or critique. And I think that this is one of the major failing points of our social experiments online right now is that we're highly comparative mm. and we're highly, we're very judgmental about anything that's derivative. And it's like, everything is derivative oh, yeah. <laughs> in this world. Like you are literally online talking to each other through a platform. Everything you're doing is derivative here. So yeah, judge less, be open more and appreciate and enjoy more. I hope that we get back to a point where people can just sit down and listen to an album from track one to track 12, yeah. read some liner notes, yeah. take a breath, yeah. not worry how all the sounds were made. <laughs> Last thought before our closing question, do you have any advice or opinions on the idea that creativity seems to be, for a lot of people, tied to their tools these days? Like, mm. I'm going to do a new record, that therefore I must need a new guitar. Or, uh, I mean, I know I've fallen victim to that. I have instruments, you know, all around me that I don't use. But I feel like a lot of people, they tie their creativity to a tool. Yeah. Um, and in some, I, I do see that. And I think that in some cases, it's a chicken or the egg kind of thing, right? Did someone make this album so they could use this thing? Or did this thing influence them so much that they made this album? Or I kind of see it oftentimes as someone gets introduced to a really awesome new effects plugin. And it's so awesome that it sparks inspiration for days. And from that inspiration comes six new tracks. 
So the question here is, is, is that any different than going down to the, the Portland music shop that I'd hang out in all the time and grabbing a new pair of seven A's instead of two B's to play my kit with and maybe a new guitar pedal for the guitarist. Yeah. Because that's going to inspire boatloads of stuff, right? Um, fresh sticks and a new pedal? Are you kidding me? We're going to make some music. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of opinions. And we used to have these conversations about bands about selling out. Their first album was amazing. They were so raw and authentic. And their second album sucks. It's so like, well, nuts. what if, what if... Their second album was actually the stuff that they wanted to make, and the first stuff is the stuff that they had to make to get you guys to pay attention or whatever, right? <laughs> we don't know. We have no idea. That's true. Maybe they grew up. Maybe they had kids. Maybe they didn't want to write offensive material enough or anymore because they wanted their family to hear their music, or who knows? Who knows what it is? Oh, yeah. But, yeah, but, like, we've moved beyond that conversation of, well, shame on them for selling out. Now I can't follow them or enjoy them or whatever. It's like, well, you, you could... You you could still enjoy them exactly, but I don't know. I think that I think it's um, I think it's really interesting just how much we focus on all of that. And and I mean I do it myself. I I'm always pulling sounds apart and I'm critically listening to things and you know trying to suss out exactly what they've done to arrive at this at this point musically or or sonically. And and at at, at points it's a bit maddening, right? It's just like just sit back and enjoy it and. There's some magic in not knowing, you know? There is total magic in not knowing, especially when you have, like we were talking about, infinite supply to sounds, loops. You don't have to have any understanding of harmony anymore. You just have to make something that you think feels good and other people think feels good. You don't have to know what the chords are anymore. It, yeah, yeah. It's pretty yeah. crazy when you think about, you know, what's going on. Yeah. For, for for the sake of the layout of your map that you're making, I was a uh, uh, in a former life. I'm a a, a classically trained uh, chef as well, and coming from the hospitality world, I really enjoy the concept of a black box challenge where you're given the same exact ingredients as me. We're mm -hmm. in the same space at the same time, and we will absolutely come up with two very different tasting and looking dishes. And that's what I find most intriguing about um, samples presets, loops in general, is we're all cooking with the same ingredients. Show me what you got. True. True. Show me what you got. I don't own garlic. We can all cook with garlic. Show me how you use garlic. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 No, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, I love it. I love it. This, this has been an awesome conversation, Chris. Um, so, I, I think you've listened to a few episodes, so you know, you know how this ends. What currently is your big goal, and what is the first smallest thing you are doing to go towards that goal? Um, I think predominantly the goal for this year is to collaborate more with music and not just sounds, because um, when you're heavy into the sound design side of the industry, it's very, very easy to start losing opportunities for just music creation. And the same goes for writing for film, television, and game. You know, you're always filling some kind of a need or a niche. And sometimes you just got to let go and just create something just for the sake of creating it. So that's 
that's kind of one of those goals. I've got uh, my kiddos turning four in a, in a handful of days here, and we're nice. creating more and more together. And I want him to know that uh, there are no rules. And no matter how busy you are, there's always time to release what's flowing through you. And that there's a multitude of ways to do that and that other people can help you and you don't have to be a one-man show. <laughs> so I've already started doing that. I've already kicked off the year with a new uh, little side project and it's been fun. We've already knocked out our first couple of complete tracks and we're starting on another. So it's just a matter of, of connecting more with people musically, I think, this year. Cool. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, Chris, I would, I would keep going for like hours, but... We should uh, we should probably call it before we go. Do you want to let people know uh, where they can find you, your websites, your socials that you don't use, your Twitch? Yeah, sure. Website is omlabmusic.com. All strung together, no hyphens, dots, or anything. Twitter is omlabmusic. Facebook is omlab. Twitch is omlab. Those are the big ones. You can find me elsewhere through there. You can also find Omlab Sounds on ADSR through Native Instruments on sounds.com. You can find them on Big Fish, uh, Sample Music, a whole bunch of other places. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Noise, Sample Phonics, Output. It just kind of keeps going from there. Well, I'll be doing a lot of stuff with Ghost Hack this year. Oh, cool. Very good. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much, man. This was awesome. We, uh, I look forward to hanging out again. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Yeah. And we'll get you back on the stream soon, too. Oh, would love to. It would be great. That'd be great. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. So that's it for another episode of Progression, Success in the Music Industry. As usual, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate all the messages and the comments and the shares. Don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. Hang out and chat with us there. And we'll see you next week.